Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. For four years, Dr. Sonia Brookins-Sanalisis has been at the helm of the Baltimore City school system. She's faced challenges, including layoffs, maintenance issues, and funding cuts. But there's also been successes with rising test scores and graduation rates. Through it all, Dr. Sanalisis has been called a stabilizing force for city schools. Dr. Sanalisis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Megan. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So I have heard you speak so passionately about education, particularly in Baltimore City, as being an issue of life or death. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you and why is it so important? So for a number of reasons. So one, we know, right, that young people who have a solid educational background, right, meaning they graduate from high school, mm-hmm. they're able to go on and either go to college or into job training programs. First and foremost, just their opportunities to lead a fuller life mm-hmm. are better if they have an education. And then I would say, if you add on the Baltimore City context, mm-hmm. what can be really scary is that oftentimes, young people's uh, experience with schools and with the education system really determine whether or not they are more likely um, to be involved in activity um, that, frankly, has a greater likelihood of leading to them either death physically Mm -hmm. or just death of dreams and death of kind of their own aspirations. So whether it's figurative death or literal death, I think what it does is it, it really connects the importance for me of education Mm -hmm. and the life of individual young people, but also the life of our city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes your job very high stakes for you, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I think oftentimes, you know, when we think of kind of life or death um, positions and I, you know, I will talk to our health commissioner, you know, Dr. Mm Daraza, and, um, you know, we'll have conversations about it. And I think in medicine, everything is immediately life or death. And Mm -hmm. it's not difficult for me to imagine or for general people to imagine. But when you talk about education, it's easy to think of it as, oh, we have 13 years, right, to make sure that young people are ready. We have all this time, right? Mm -hmm. And we start, and we really don't. And I know that as a mom, I know that as an educator, there are just certain real critical periods, right, in human development that if we don't get young people what they need during those periods, it just gets so much harder. And so what we're really working on is how do we maximize that trajectory? So it really it really is very urgent work. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to you growing up and what kind of role did education play in your life as you were yeah. you were growing up in elementary school and That's high right. school? Sure. Well, and and very similarly, you know, had a family where education was always important. Mm-hmm. So that was just kind of the start and school was important. Mm-hmm. So school was taken very seriously. But also education is also something that occurred outside of school. Yes. Right. So that education wasn't just about getting up and going to school every day. Education was about um, asking questions, right? So, you know, questions about the world around me. So whether it was, you know, the moon coming back from the babysitters, right? Mm -hmm. And my dad, who, you know, is a chemist and into science, you know, we would have conversations about that, or we would walk in the woods and we would talk about that, Mm -hmm. or we would talk about what was going on in the newspaper that day and how it impacted us. So I grew up in a house where, yes, school, 
was always important, but education was something that you did all of the time. You were always learning about new things. And so for me, it's really about learning. And school is one incredibly important space in which to learn, but that education takes many forms. And so um, that, I think, really helped me kind of center the importance of learning. Uh, And again, school's one really important element of that, but it's not the only place that people learn. Absolutely. How do you instill in the parents that you come in contact with that it's really important for them to be their child's first teacher? Mm, Well, and it's interesting that you said that, Megan, because I spent this morning in a school, one of our schools, uh, Lakeland, uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, elementary middle school and we were there with principal um Najib Jamal and his his uh staff and one of the things that you noticed right away was that parent spaces and family spaces were a real living part of the building right mm-hmm. so it might be across from um for example their Judy Center right which is where their little little people come mm-hmm. and there you have families um that come in with their toddlers with their two or three-year-olds and are singing songs and are, you know, reading together and learning together. And I think it's important for families to know that they are a vital part Absolutely. Of their children's learning. Uh, the, the other piece um, that you would notice, you know, at the school is the connections between home and school, right? So making sure, for example, in that school, you have large numbers of English language learners. So mm-hmm. making sure that there, for example, are bilingual classrooms, right? So that young people are seeing the connection between their home language and school language. Mm-hmm. And uh, we walked in and they had a celebration, um, some of the decorations from a celebration in a of Hispanic um, heritage that the school had done. And those are the kinds of things that say to parents and families, not only are you welcome, but you are actually critical Mm -hmm. to your child's success. And I think in places where um, we really see that kind of relationship, there's a mutual respect between parents and educators in schools like that. What you see are, again, spaces and places Mm -hmm. for parents to connect and to have their their connection verified. And really, I think it's one of the major thrusts behind uh, a lot of folks might have been hearing something called uh, community schools, which has been a huge topic of discussion, Um, not only amongst our own city government. We've got a number of city councilmen who've championed community schools. Mm -hmm. Um, The state legislature in Kerwin discussions have championed community schools. And what we find in our community schools that work well in the city is that it's about wraparound, right? It's about um, how do we connect families to resources and really try to build schools as uh, vibrant centers of community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think those are some of the ways that that we're trying to be responsive. And then also helping parents navigate the system, right? Sure. And when you have a system like we do in Baltimore City, we're very proud of our choice system, right? That parents yes. have a portfolio of options. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that is it can be very scary. It can be very daunting Mm -hmm. if you are a family that does not feel as if you can navigate that system. Mm -hmm. It can be overwhelming. So one of the things we've started working on uh, with our new uh, chief, uh, High Cupboard, uh, Tina High Cupboard, who Mm -hmm. heads up our family and community engagement work and enrollment, is really how do we make that process more accessible for families? Mm -hmm. How do they have the information earlier on to be able to navigate for themselves because Mm -hmm. we don't want to perpetuate a system of 
have and have nots. And so we're really asking ourselves, how do we begin to break down some of those walls? So I I think there's a lot of ways we have so much more we could be doing, Mm -hmm. but we have some great examples around the city. When you talk about have and have nots, I feel like Baltimore is a city almost formed on have and have nots. So that's a big, big wall. How difficult is that to take on when you're talking about educating the children of the city? No, and you're you're absolutely right, Megan, and you just kind of directly called it out. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, the bifurcation of the city is evident on a regular basis. I think part of what we are working hard to do, particularly with our equity work and bringing on uh, Dr. Tracy Durant, who's doing um, really some heavy lift and really important leadership work, is how do we ask the hard questions of ourselves in our practice, right? We know historically within the city that certain communities are resourced very differently um, and to a much lesser extent than others. And so part of our efforts are how do we most deliberately disrupt that trajectory? And so some of what we've done is We've actually mapped the city and we've mapped schools around the city to say, okay, schools in communities that were traditionally under-resourced, how do we actually give more to those cities? So a very simple way, I mean, those schools, excuse me, a simple way uh, seemingly that we did that this year is in our staffing, our traditional staffing of schools. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really kind of first come, first serve, right, in terms of principles. Well, our human capital team this year made a real concerted effort to prioritize getting our most under-resourced schools first pick at at teachers and getting them high-quality candidates Mm -hmm. earlier so that they were better able to secure um, their position. So, for example, a school like Douglas High School that traditionally opens with no less than 10 to 15 vacancies was fully staffed um, by the end of July, which was unheard of. And so those young people coming back didn't have to worry about substitutes the first Mm -hmm. day, didn't have to wonder, am I going to go a month before my first classroom teacher shows up? Mm -hmm. But we prioritized making making sure. And we, the principal did a fabulous job. And so that's one small way that a school that might have been kind of tossed to the side became prioritized mm-hmm. and staff mobilized. Similarly with um, some of our advanced programming. When we mapped across the city, uh, we saw that certain certain zip codes had a plethora of, of, you know, advanced programming, of arts programming. And then we asked ourselves, okay, where in the city are there none? And so we deliberately built out those programs in those neighborhoods that had rarely, if ever, had that kind of advanced programming. Um, We're looking at arts education now. Where are the schools Mm -hmm. that have had very paltry arts offerings and making a deliberate investment there. So we're trying to really not just in our resource allocation, but also in attitude, also in bias, right? How do we change our perceptions Mm -hmm. and really look deeply at the system? And we're proud of our equity policy. Our board championed that. And now what we're trying to do is really put that equity policy that we worked in part with the community on, you know, the community 
said to us, you have to boldly acknowledge, right, the, you know, the way that the school system historically has perpetuated um, some of these same racial and economic inequities. And so we're very proud of the fact that, you know, our board took a stand and it's explicitly in our equity policy that we Mm -hmm. acknowledge that role and that we are working to counter it and to do things differently. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you're absolutely right. And you can't, we wouldn't be able to do the lift in Baltimore if we shied away from acknowledging that history and that reality. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Visit the Central Library's new thought-provoking exhibit, Undesign the Red Line, an interactive experience that invites participants to learn the history, interact with the stories, and invent a new future by undoing structural inequities. November 1st through January 31st at the Pratt Central Library. More details at prattlibrary.org. One of the things that I heard that you did that we're actually doing here at the Pratt Library is bringing in the Undesign the Red Line exhibit. So that's on exhibit at the Central Library. What kind of impact did that have having it in the administrative offices at North Avenue? Well, and you know what was great about it was I'd, I'd say first it was our attempt to say, again, we're acknowledging this. Mm -hmm. We want you um, public to hold us accountable for our movement in this area. But it also was very much another education experience, Mm -hmm. right? Just walking into the building, the number of people who would stop and read and say, wow, I didn't know that, or I didn't Mm -hmm. know this element of it. Um, You probably know this. The, The great part about the Undesign the Red Line exhibit is it's very visual and interactive, mm-hmm. right? So it's a great way to learn the history of structured, legalized, and frankly approved, right? Yeah. Ways that communities were deliberately under-resourced and were deliberately pushed to the side mm-hmm. and to the outskirts. And so it was it was wonderful watching people of all ages come to central office thinking they were just coming for a meeting, you know, a public board uh, subcommittee. And to see that they are really, you know, in some ways took some people aback. They mm-hmm. weren't really sure how to process it. And then others, it was very verifying. And we really felt like as a lead educational institution mm-hmm. in the city, it was important for us. But I I just think it's one of the most powerful exhibits. I took my cabinet, you know, before it came to central office. Mm-hmm. And that reaction, the reaction of some of our young people sure. who went was really one of the driving driving forces of bringing it to to North Avenue. Well, it's interesting to see the mapping of the redlining and then look at it. I've seen your maps of where you plotted out schools and you yes. can see the disinvestment in the same areas. I mean, it's just... That's right. It's, it's actually quite scary yeah. uh, when you look at it. And when I show those maps, I think we have one we used from 1939 like, and then match that up mm-hmm. to some of the present day data, whether I'm in Baltimore City or on the West Coast, whenever I show those maps, you can hear kind of that, that pregnant silence yeah. of people not really knowing what to say because it's so clearly linked to a lot of what um, our communities are struggling with today. Mm-hmm. At what point?
point in your life did you find that urban education was going to be your life's calling? Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting. I probably dodged it for a bit. I mean, am I just, you know, going to be As honest on the sometimes. podcast? Right. I did. And so I loved, I loved school when I was growing up. I loved playing school, but it was one of those things, you know, in fairness, when my, my mother will at least admit it. I don't know if my dad will, but, um, you know, it was one of those things that I always loved doing, but it was also viewed as something that uh, Black women at first, you know, went into because there was, frankly, nothing else they could do, right? Mm -hmm. It was one of the few career options open. And so it took me a while, right? Because it was the, well, wait a minute, you know, the whole, well, you're too smart to teach. There are so many things you could do. Mm -hmm. And so, and I have a love for international relations, which came very naturally. Mm -hmm. But then it, believe it or not, it was substitute teaching, in my hometown, which wasn't an urban area, but really kind of crystallized. It was right after graduation. And I was waiting to hear from some posts overseas that I had applied to and really fell in love with the teaching. And then when I thought about where I wanted to teach, I wanted to teach where I could make a difference and where it was connected to some of the community building work I had studied in international relations. So, you know, life is is full circle. And I remember the day I told my parents that that's what I was <laughs> going to do. Uh, my dad was thrilled because he's like, great, I don't have to worry about you becoming like some, you know, bougie, you know, <laughs> disconnected black woman. And my mother was just, are you kidding me? We paid for all this school. (laughs) You know, my aunts were ribbing her and saying, you paid all that for an Ivy League education for her to do. They have all since been there, all since fine with it. (laughs) They're okay. But I, I love teaching. I think it's one of the most complex tasks that anybody can do. It's very invigorating. There are days, the hard days, um, when I'm just like, you know, just give me a classroom to go Mm -hmm. back into. Um, And not because it's not hard. I think teachers and principals have the hardest jobs in the city. Absolutely. But it is still one of the most invigorating. As hard as it is, when it goes well, it goes really well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I did. And I, you know, was that oldest child, you know, the the one that said, okay, this is lovely and I'm glad you've mapped this out. You know, my yep. mom had seen me as being like, you know, Condoleezza Rice, of right? Course, and yes. then when you come home and say, ah, oh, sorry, actually, I really want to go teach in Bedford-Stuyvesant. So I'm going to New York. It was, uh, it was fun, but it, it is, it's what I love doing. Absolutely. So. And you came to Baltimore, was it a little over 10 years ago? Is that yes, right? Yes. It's just about 10. We yes. track it by our twin daughters, our youngest twin daughters, uh, but they were just about a year when we moved. Oh. And they only know Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Baltimore is home for them. So, yes, it's been a decade. It's a little, yeah, it feels a little funny, actually. But, yeah, it's been that long. What initially brought you to Baltimore? What made you say, this is where I want to be? So, I mean, part of it, frankly, was was the pull of city schools. At that mm-hmm. time, um, Andres Alonzo was CEO, and we had gone to graduate school together. Mm-hmm. And so I said, great, it would be great to, you know, work here. And then we came to Baltimore, and it was so palpably different than New England, just culturally. Mm-hmm. That I think over the years, we just we grew to love it. And so even when I left to um, head up K-12 policy sure. uh, research and practice for Education Trust in D.C., there was actually a time, Megan, when we we assumed we would move mm-hmm. to D.C. And this is no disrespect to any D.C. listeners <laughs> or natives, okay. right? Okay. No disrespect. But we went down and we were like looking at houses and stuff. And I thought, 
oh, God, this is so not us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought, okay, D.C. is a great place to visit and work, but God, I don't want to live here. Mm-hmm. And so we stayed in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the moments that crystallized for us that that Baltimore was home. It is the community of neighborhoods. I love the realness, if there's such a word, of Baltimore. I love that people give it straight. Our kids give it straight. Mm-hmm. Our families give it straight. I love the texture of the different communities oh, yeah. and the histories and how people hold it so immediately, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'll never forget when we moved here and my husband went to, um, you know, City College in CUNY, right? For oh. And so when I was telling people, my husband was going around <laughs> telling people, oh, yeah, you know, they're like, where do you go to school? And he had assumed it was college. City. So he was saying, oh, I went to City College. And people were like, yeah. And he's like, Sonia, you'd never guess all the CUNY grads that are in Baltimore. And I had to say, uh, babe, I don't actually, think. no, you're not fitting. You're not fitting into that narrative. But no, we've come to really love Baltimore as home. And our, our girls don't know anything else. So mm-hmm. for them, Baltimore is home. Yes. And you were working. Working in D.C., but something brought you back to be the leader of the Baltimore yeah. City School System. I know it happened after the uprising. Did mm-hmm. that impact why you wanted to lead this school system? Yeah, it really did. I had never really thought of, you know, seriously leading mm-hmm. a school district. You know, you you think about it from time to time, but I was I was fine where I was, and it really was. I didn't. I, I had a reaction to other people's reaction to our city, yes. and being in D.C. Yep. Right. I remember the night coming home and people talking about this high school and these kids mm. pouring out, and I'm thinking, what in the world? What high school are they talking about? Because yeah. I had been in policy meetings all day mm-hmm. and was coming back home on the train. And that's when I basically heard the news. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the footage and hearing how people talked about young people in a school that I remember visiting. And I said to folks, no, 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 I walked the hallways in that high school. I watched kids in band practice. I visited an advanced placement English class in that high school, right? I watched, you know, step teams and pep rallies. And that is not who these kids are. And the way that people were talking about these young people as some like ominous other um, just riled me, to be very frank. And so I think think watching um, not just a system that you love, because I don't I don't know if it's that I love systems, mm-hmm. but it was young people who mm-hmm. I still to this day think are some of the brightest, most promising, real without pretense. I would much rather spend days. I mean, hint, hint, maybe I shouldn't say this. I would much rather <laughs> spend days with young people who keep it real than adults who sometimes like to blather <laughs> and have tons of pretense. Yes. Um, and young people just don't have that. They mm-hmm. they give it to you straight and they are so gifted. And if you, you probably know this, when you ask them about ways of addressing mm-hmm. Our city's challenges, um, they have incredible insights. And so one of the only things that that I think we have not given them to the degree we should have as adults in a community is the tools to be able to translate what they understand to multiple audiences. Mm-hmm. Like they are brilliant when they're just sitting down talking to me about, okay, this is what needs to happen with transportation. Yeah. Like this is why I can't get to school. And they can break it down to its smallest step, right? Mm-hmm. Right. In terms of what needs to happen. But if I want them to translate that 
into an op-ed, right, for the Baltimore Sun Mm -hmm. or for the Chicago Mm Sun-Times or for a policy group of policymakers in either D.C. or Baltimore. Our charge, my charge, what I feel very deeply is that as the school system, um, schools' role is to provide young people with the additional tools to communicate beyond kind of their immediate circle, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to have a command of mathematics so that they can use data to make the points that that are their lived experience. Their lived experience is validity enough, but the ability to make impact beyond mm-hmm. is that ability to navigate tools. So when you hear hear people like ta Coates, who was here recently, mm-hmm. speaking with a number of our teachers, which mm-hmm. was wonderful. Yeah, you know, he he has the ability and the tools to be able to communicate to multiple audiences. Mm-hmm. Dee Watkins, the same thing, Absolutely. right? Like just that, that ability to go between audiences, to draw people in. Our young people have. It's just we have to equip them mm-hmm. with the tools to be able to do that. That's our job. Mm-hmm. And that's for me why, again, this is about life or death, Mm -hmm. because they have the solutions. We just need to do a much better job at giving them the tools to express that in in various rooms um, across the city and, frankly, across the nation. Mm-hmm. How do programs like One Book Baltimore and Jason Reynolds, you know, you talk about Dee Watkins and Tani Zicotes, um, creating those role models for students. How important is a program like One Book Baltimore that brings in some of these people to the school district to talk one-on-one to kids? Because that room where we launched One Book this year was like lit up. People were so excited. Oh, my goodness. And some of my favorite photos this year were of young people. I texted my sister, who is a professor up in uh, a college in New England, Mm -hmm. and I texted her one of the pictures of four middle school young men who were just like they were clutching their yes. book and they were their eyes were peeled mm-hmm. on Jason Reynolds and mm-hmm. they were not moving and you could tell he had them. Mm-hmm. And what we see, and we have a number of teachers I think who get this, like Laquisha Hall, who was our teacher of the year two years ago. Mm-hmm. She is amazing at making those connections mm-hmm. between texts and authors and the importance of kids seeing people who look like them, who are from where they are from, mm-hmm. who reflect their lives in text and in books. And it's so powerful watching them make those connections Mm -hmm. and to see themselves. And what's fabulous is that in the same way they connect there, what it does is I I watch it build their confidence and their ability to then, you know, part of our seventh grade ELA curriculum is reading Chaucer, right? And so you walk into that room with seventh grade and the fact that these kids can go from Jason Reynolds to Mm -hmm. Chaucer and feel equally equipped, right? Once they have the tools to break it down, to me, again, it just reflects the fact that one, they need the messages. It's our responsibility to give them the messages that you belong in these rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, you you should be, right, and can be a Jason Reynolds. You can be a Ta-Nehisi Coates, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's who you are. When Dee Watkins is sitting mm-hmm. um, with young people in classrooms, he went to, I think, Ms. Hall's classroom and a number a number of folks, and you just see what they ask and how they connect 
it's part of the driver between what I like to refer to as curriculum and learning as both windows and mirrors, right? Mm -hmm. You get to see into worlds that you haven't seen before, but you also get a verification of who you are. And so a lot of our Be More Me curriculum Mm -hmm. that we've put together is a study of Baltimore and the history of Baltimore um, and the people in Baltimore and from Baltimore Mm -hmm. um, as a way of allowing young people to see that they actually are from greatness and that there is incredible strength in this city Mm -hmm. and incredible strength in their communities. And because of the narratives, I think we, I mean, maybe some people do get it, you know, based on, you know, some of your experience in communication, um, the messages that young people hear about themselves has a lot to do with their posture and readiness for learning. And so when our young people through One Book Baltimore, which has been wonderful, I can't believe it's only like year two for us for this. It feels like it's like year five. Yeah, I feel like we're in year five. We're not. (laughs) But like, it's it's just, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful collaboration. And one of the things I love about it is it does represent, you know, the community, Mm -hmm. right? Help select. We partner with you all at Mm -hmm. Enoch Pratt. Uh, T. Rowe Price comes in. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Baltimore Ceasefire has helped select the books. So it's a real community effort. It's not just a city schools effort, which I love. Don't pay to download your favorite ebooks and e-audiobooks. You can do it for free at the Pratt Library. Access some of the most in-demand titles today. You can put away your credit card. All you need is a Pratt Library card. More information on how to access our e-library at prattlibrary.org. Your TED Talk in 2011. Man, they made you do a lot know, of research, I'm a good Megan. researcher. I'm a good researcher. I'm an ex-reporter. I'm a good researcher. That's what, it is. So. That's what it is. You ended with a question that was, are we ready for what it will take to make sure that every young person in Baltimore City is viewed as a leader? What progress do you feel like we've made towards that? And where do we have further to go? So I think the progress is seen in the number of uh, student-led organizations or youth-led organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, The mobilization of youth voice is, I think, a real positive move in that direction. I also think the number of young people in the city who are finding places from which to lead that Mm -hmm. play to their own talents, right? Mm -hmm. So the young people who mobilized around, you know, eradicating the use of styrofoam, the young people who are part of Baltimore Urban Debate League, right, who are bringing their voice Mm -hmm. to this exercise of debate that actually is foundational for what they will do after. The young people who are are part of our, I think, you know, the the Western Girls Robotics team and the spread of robotics mm-hmm. across Baltimore City Amazing. public schools. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is we actually led um, long before a lot of other schools mm-hmm. got involved in robotics. So those are places, this idea that young people have places where their voices can have impact mm-hmm. and they can practice leading in their immediate sphere so that when they decide they want to or are ready to lead at another level, they know what it feels like. And Mm -hmm. I think in that way, we've made great progress. I think in the places we have a ways to go are really providing the 
opportunities for young people to see the variety of places that they lead. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, from the time I've been very little, has been very big about exposure and just being able to see and experience a variety of things. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have a, way, a ways to go in providing a richness of opportunities Absolutely. as both schools and a city for young people to explore mm-hmm. what their real talents and gifts are. You know, I never would have guessed that my oldest, who runs a little shy, right, <laughs> would be interested in drama, right? And that's her way. She hates public speaking regularly, but when she is on a stage, you know, Katriel's a whole different person. And so, but that's because she had exposure mm-hmm. to drama, right? She had the chance to act. Sure. If you have a middle school with no middle school musical, how would you ever know mm-hmm. that stage made you feel that way. We have, um, I'll never forget a high school student who said, look, I'll do your algebra. Like I get, I have to do that, (laughs) but I love art, right? Mm -hmm. But my high school only has two arts classes. And so I think where we have a ways to go is really providing the kinds of experiences that allow young people to see all the different ways and places they can lead. It's not just limited to what they see every day. And then I think we still have the responsibility. I think we're on on a great trajectory. And I think that the city has really made efforts. Sure to hear the voices of young people mm-hmm. more than I think when I was first arriving 10 years ago. Sure. But again, creating space for them to develop those tools. Um, yes, it is about talking, but I want them to be able to write well. I want them to be able to craft position papers mm-hmm. and to not feel as if they are limited, you know, because of a skill that we weren't successful in giving them. So we, we still have a ways to go there. I think we're on a positive trajectory. And then just providing... Young people with the safety to be young people. Mm -hmm. Leading should not mean, and I guess I'm old fashioned this way, leading should not mean that we truncate your childhood. Mm -hmm. And we have so many young people and and children in this city whose childhood is being truncated because we as adults collectively have not protected them Mm -hmm. in the way that they deserve to be protected. Mm -hmm. And to ask 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds to shoulder some of what we are asking them to shoulder. I just am, I guess, old-fashioned enough to say you shouldn't have to be worried about that at the age of 12. And how can you worry about that and worry about your algebra homework at the same time? Exactly. Exactly. And so we we have to do a better job of coordinating our efforts Mm -hmm. as um, leaders and agencies across the city. I think we we are trying to move in that direction. Um, And you know that um, Mm -hmm. just in terms of our partnering, but we we still have a ways to go. Mm -hmm. One of the things I do want to talk about is, you know, we're pushing forward into a new legislative session in Annapolis. The Kerwin Commission and the funding behind it is certainly going to be something that's going to be talked about for those months. What is your hope for how that plays out in Annapolis? So, I mean, I am very hopeful that because of the Kerwin Commission's work, to mm-hmm. date, we have at least a, a beginning understanding mm-hmm. of just what more we need to be doing, at least at a minimal level, to really be able to say we have a, a world-class education for all mm-hmm. young people in the state of Maryland. And that's not a minor task. Yeah. Um, and so that has been, I think, one of the real positive strengths of the commission. I think a willingness and leadership to be able to say, 
you know, and this cost to do this, yep. right? Mm-hmm. I think that is a positive. My hope, though, ultimately, is that the state of Maryland, that we as members of a larger community that is Maryland, that is one of the most resourced states in the United States, um, actually makes the level of investment that we can make. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things, and you know this, that I cite is not studies done by the school department, mm-hmm. right? But studies done by national organizations that actually look comparatively across the country, mm-hmm. that, that we really step up and say we want an enriched world-class education for all young people in Maryland. And yes, of course, the accountability. And yes, you know, I have to be accountable regardless. Um, that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I've said to a couple of people, I have lived in communities that put education first, and I know what it looks like. Sure. And it doesn't look like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't, right? I know what it means. And what it means is no matter what zip code you live in, you get to learn an instrument. And it's not dependent on whether your parent hunts down a teacher and writes a check to the teacher, mm-hmm. right? Every young person uh, walking through the door. When my nephew learned saxophone, he did that because his public school down the street, mm-hmm. right, made sure every school had a music teacher, every young person got a recorder in first or second grade. You got to select an instrument in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And he is now in high school, you know, playing in, you know, the top level sax, you know, jazz band. But Mm -hmm. he did that through public school. Mm -hmm. It is young people being able to go on trips. Um, You know, when I was teaching even in Bed-Stuy, you know, and I had a girls group and we went on a trip out of state Mm -hmm. every single year. It wasn't once a month, but it was once a year. Mm -hmm. And so my kids in Brooklyn got a chance to see, you know, seacoast in New England. They got to go to their nation's capital. Mm -hmm. Um, They got to see the world. They got to get out of the country and go to Canada. And that was in their public school. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what we have to decide in Maryland is do we want to be that state? And given all of the characteristics of Maryland, I would say that most people want that, but we have to really come to grips with that investment the way that other communities have. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big year. We're also going into a mayoral election. Yes, Um, yes. So no matter who wins, what kind of priorities within education are you hoping to hear from them? So And so far, what I would say, Megan, is so far, most of the mayoral candidates that, you know, that I've heard really are aware of this moment in time with with Kerwin Mm -hmm. and the importance of schooling uh, for our city's vitality and, you know, by extension, our state's vitality. Mm -hmm. And that that in and of itself is encouraging. I would say what we do know is leadership from City Hall around education, around the well-being of our city's young people has an impact and Mm -hmm. people hear and people notice and take notice. So I would say, to me, what's encouraging is if, as part of this election cycle, if we continue to ask questions and talk about education in the ways that we've begun to, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's very promising. It holds Mm -hmm. great promise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... The future is looking up, right? Yes. (laughs) I hold on to that. If I didn't hold on to that, I wouldn't be in this seat. (laughs) This is one of these jobs where if you do not, you know, if you don't look down the road, Mm -hmm. 
you won't be able to do the work. I have always said, principals will tell you, this work we are doing is generational work. If I were only doing this for this election cycle, Mm -hmm. if I were only working for this round of test scores, I would never have done it. Mm -hmm. This is about how do we plant seeds and prepare for what will actually come to fruition 10 to 15 years from now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I want. I want somebody to say, I was in a Baltimore City Public School, and when I was in third grade, I finally learned how to read well. I had science. I had art. And look what I'm doing now, right? I'm starting this new entrepreneurial venture in Baltimore, or I am representing Baltimore around the world and, you know, doing great things. And Or I am raising a family, and that family is a healthy family. Mm-hmm. And that family is a, is a family where then that generation is well-nurtured. So I tell everybody, you know, and they're like, well, how do you do it? And I said, because I don't, I don't, I'm not doing this for the immediate. A lot of people in this day and age are into what's the latest tweet, Instagram post, Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't be in educational work if you don't recognize that it's generational. So it's all about generational work for me. I don't know that there's anything more important than what happens in the classroom for, for a child. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it is. And it's a, it's an extension, you know, and, and this is the piece that we, which is why, you know, we're really glad about, you know, the city's focus with the new Office of, um, of Family and Children, mm-hmm. right? Of, you know, the reality is we go and we do all of these things and it, it is really for naught if we do not have healthy families mm-hmm. raising healthy children. Mm-hmm. And schools are one of the largest supports. It is hard enough. And, you know, I say this all the time to principals, like, yes, we do want to partner with families, and they are first teachers. But the reality is, with all that parents and families are doing, we should not expect them to also teach their kids to read. If so, then we shouldn't have public schools. Mm-hmm. And if we are going to have public schools, then we need to expect that we can take that part off of parents' plates and that we should be able to partner with them in doing that. Yeah. And it's all about sort of working together towards that That's common right. goal of a better Baltimore. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we, we, like I said, we have a ways to go, but we are on an upswing and we've seen some some promising trends, trends that I am proud to, to lead because it's not me. When I was at Lakeland this morning, I said to them, um, and when I go to other schools, you know, principals and teachers are on the front line. Mm-hmm. They are the people doing the work. I I am just here to provide um, direction, uh, feedback, support, have their back so that they don't have to worry about taking all the arrows, right? And I tell them all the time, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do so you can focus on kids and families. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stanalisis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Megan. It's great having the conversation. Great way to spend an afternoon. So that's good. (laughs) Get help navigating the tech world with free computer classes at the Pratt. We've got something for all levels, from email basics to advanced Excel. Classes available at Pratt locations across Baltimore City. Details at prattlibrary.org. You're free to be more at the Pratt. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.